to create new, brand new uh, educational learning phenomenon is really where the immediacy is, as well as the possibility of survival. So this is a good convergence, that's why I'm optimistic. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi all and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. Today we are speaking with Michael Fullen. Michael is the former Dean of the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education and Professor Emeritus of the University of Toronto. He is co-leader of the New Pedagogies for Deep Learning Global Initiative and is recognized as a worldwide authority on educational reform, advising policymakers and local leaders to help achieve the moral purpose of education. Michael has received the Order of Canada, uh, which he received in 2012 and holds honorary doctorates from several universities around the world. Michael is an award-winning author of many, many books. You've been quite prolific, Michael, including the two most recent ones, Nuance, Why Some Leaders Are Effective and Others Aren't, and The Devil is in the Details, Equity, Excellence and Exploring Change with Mary Jane Gallagher. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure. So, I mean, there are so many questions um, because we are recording this, of course, at what is surely one of the most disruptive moments, uh, at least in my lifetime. And so that's kind of where I wanted to start is around this idea that crises, be they pandemics, be they social unrest, they don't just disrupt, but they can also reveal inequities in some parts of the world, uh, ways that our system isn't responding to the needs of all learners. In fact, entire economic assumptions that we make kind of become challenged. Uh, as we see unemployment rates skyrocketing and, you know, second and third order effects of the pandemic beyond the health, which might be social connectedness and economic impacts. So there's a lot in that, but I just love your reflections from, you know, you've, you've seen a lot throughout your career, uh, particularly in educational leadership, but in a range of ways. Like what's, what's your current reflection on the state of the world uh, in June 2020? Well, I think it's, um, it's no accident <clears throat> that these things have come together at the same time and ramified, even though nobody's orchestrating them. If, if you believe in evolution, uh, you'll know that uh, forces happen and then they uh, interconnect in ways that are sometimes wonderful and sometimes destructive, but they, uh, they go together. So in chapter one of The Devil, we set the stage, and, and uh, Mary Jean and I, and have a big analysis drawing on a lot of the evolutionary thinking in the last uh, two or three years that says uh, we have two big forces that are uh, negative. One is mm -hmm. climatological catastrophe, which includes disease and uh, all the things, all the deterioration of Mother Nature. And then we also have galloping inequality, huge, and the, and the, and the uh, the numbers are extreme and they're getting more and more extreme. These two things are not independent of each other. They feed on each other. When you have bad things happening in the climate and you have uh, inequality, which puts everybody in a bad mood, I'm gonna to say to put it mildly, but inequality is erodes trust, cohesion, all of those things. So people aren't inclined uh, to do more than express their frustration and growingly. And so this is a powder keg. This is what's happened with COVID-19 was already a powder keg ready to explode and COVID did the job of exploding it. 
that's what I think. What what do you think? Because uh, of course, there's the triage, so to speak, from systems, all you know, economic systems, educational systems, health systems, which is where it's it's really trying to adapt and respond as quickly as possible. And so I think that's in, in some parts of the world, particularly in Australia, uh, we have kind of moved beyond the triage point to now one of transition. Um, I wonder what you think, you know, how things change from one, that first stage, which is, you know, it's taken us all by surprise. Many parts of our societies aren't prepared. Um, you know, what's, what changes from this idea of triaging kind of the most important thing, so emergency teaching, for example, and some of the amazing things that educators have done around the world, um, but which parts of normal do we not want to rush back to, I suppose is my question. Um, because that seems to be me to be the big opportunity that we have collectively. Well, main parts of normal that we, pre-normal that we don't want are the boredom of education. I mean, the data are pretty clear. We have them in our book as well. Two, at least two thirds of students by the time they get to secondary school are not connected in any good way to society or to learning. In, in at least in schools. So that, uh, <clears throat> that's one thing that we want to, uh, we want to be able to make, make, make sure we don't go back to. So that's, that's a big issue. <clears throat> the second one is then how to find the best alternatives. And th this is, uh, there's good news and, and challenges. The good news is uh, we have been part of this as you have with a lot of uh, young people and teachers and schools and school systems where they are already doing new things in the last three, three years or five years. And uh, these new things were more motivational for students. They're more plugged in to engage the world, change the world, as, uh, as we put it, and uh, just better, um, better all around. So this, there's several pockets of that. And one of the references I make recently, uh, Thomas Kuhn uh, wrote the book, The Scientific Revolution, The Structure of the Scientific Revolution in 1962. He said uh, revolutions, or that is when models change radically, require two conditions. One is the existing condition is palpably not working. And the second is there are alternatives that are available. So we have the first condition in spades. It's palpably not working, no question about it. But he said, he warned us, he said, that's not enough. It's not going to get overturned just because it's not working. You have to have something to go to. And this is where I think change often fails. The go-to part, people declare victory when they, when they uh, get rid of the, some of the bad stuff, but they don't spend the same energy in creating the new stuff. And so what we need now, and we have pockets of it, but it's not got a foothold yet because it's only uh, a lot of uh, pieces everywhere. So the job right now is to identify those pockets encourage them, support them, develop them, and then say immediately, what are the pathways to having this lead to more system change? And I think those people that are in what I call the pockets are game for developing those, pa those pathways for system change, not just for the little corner, but for system change. I'm really, I'm really interested in this idea about pockets. And the idea is it's not the avoidance goals that we want, it's the approach goals. What is the new system we want to co-create together? Uh, and I, I'm reminded of this, this kind of principle, which is to say, you know, the principles are few, but the methods are many. And we know that context matters, of course, in the work of education, uh, just like the work of a range of different industries. 
what would you say are the themes or the, or those key principles that you would say are, are universal and maybe that's too bold um, across some of those pockets? You know, concepts like co-agency, for example, actually moving beyond just student voice. You know, I'd love to know what, what your, what really what you found across your investigation of this over, over a really significant period of time. Uh, that's a great question, and it's we're working on it uh, as you are, and I think that uh, that what we are uh, what we are seeing is that uh, well, let me start with something very fundamental. This is going to sound uh, ridiculous in some ways, but when we look, when I look at the existing system, the strangest thing is you can tell right away it's not going to be motivational for student learning. You just look at what's in it, uh, the emphasis on standards, testing, what kind of uh, active student in 2020, 2021 is going to get excited about getting better at standards. And it's not that I want to sweep them entirely aside. I want a different pathway. And the pathway is what is going to be intrinsically motivating for young people to learn en masse, individually plus in groups. What's going to be intrinsically, and this is deep learning. This is what we've been working on. What's intrinsic is to figure out how do you get that sense of purpose and meaning? How do you uh, develop and leverage belongingness? How do you set up uh, the, the learning so its foundation is understanding the world and improving the world? So I do mean understanding, not just jumping in. How do you move away from superficial uh, 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 attempts at involving students when you ask them how they might want to learn, or you ask them uh, about student voice, or you put them on committees. That's okay a little bit, but it's not the po main point. The main point is the learning for vast numbers of students has to be personal and collective at the same time. And it has to be not only meaningful, <coughs> but it has to lead to some good. So the way I would express it is that it is about the individual good, and it's about the social good. And every learner uh, eventually, if this is successful, should be proactively saying, what am I heading towards in my individual good? Where am I going? Where, where should I go? What about the social good anyways? And uh, am I committed to that? Should I be? What can I learn from it? So these two things, I think, will pedal away and intersect. Uh, and, and we know that they're attractive to large numbers of students who have been saddled with a system who, where they don't want to put their energy into the existing system, they want to do something differently. I think that a different educational system is achievable now because there, is, there are enough pockets, and these pockets are bigger now. They're not just small pockets. They're bigger and bigger. And what we have to do is get them to intersect on the ground. If we were to play this out, and in uh, the book on the devil, uh, Mary Jean and I, uh, analyze the system according to the three levels, local schools and communities as one level, the middle, which are uh, municipalities and districts, and then the top, let's say, that our policy, whether it's state or, or federal. So those three levels, we've said, and uh, one of the phrases in uh, one of the biologists expressed about uh, evolution, he said, what I love about our work, what I love about evolution is that it's relentlessly bottom up. That's what he, how, it's how we put it. Yeah. And if it's relentlessly bottom-up, what we have to do is support the bottom-up, but also those in the bottom have to be proactive upwards as well as sideways. Mm. And those at the middle, uh, and this is what we map out in the book, have to recognize their job is to liberate and enable 
and channel in some respects with the energy coming from the bottom and the middle. So this is a big ask now also for uh, the people that responded to us so far are people at the local level, that is individual schools, pockets of students and teachers, sometimes in clusters of schools, they responded. Uh, the, the, the national policy or the state policy hasn't responded much, but there's more discussion. I don't know whether you see this, but I see this in the last three months and COVID has sparked it. Yeah. Among, um, the, at the OECD level, let's put it that way, about maybe we don't have the right system. What is the right system? Mm. And they have been, OECD has been working on alternative uh, uh, images of what the system should be. So finally, we're getting some, we're getting uh, national policies, state policies to pay attention. And it's going to be at the bottom and the middle that have to keep that pressure upward. Mm, that's, that's really fascinating. Uh, I hadn't thought of the metaphor of evolution um, as used in that particular way. I wonder, I think it's not just a, the education system. It seems to be systems, including economic ones. You know, where there's lots of debate around the kind of individualistic paradigm and the way that we distribute, like what is, what is production? What is productivity? What is success? even in this kind of new, yeah. the, the new normal, so to speak. You know, what do we want to let go of and what do we want to allow the emergence of? And I think there's, I mean, lead, this is potentially the leadership challenge of a generation because I really wonder about, you know, your views on the kind of leadership qualities and practices right now to be able to hold space because it seems to be kind of a courageous a moment, you know, well-being is a really significant concern right now, focusing on social and emotional mm -hmm. aspects, always key, uh, alongside the cognitive ones. Uh, what's your insight for leaders, uh, be they, you know, leaders in schools, leaders of schools, leaders um, of districts or systems more broadly? Um, what are the questions they should be asking? Well, I want to take, uh, yeah, in, in mm. two steps, um, we have added to our team just uh, two years ago, a little over two years ago, our neuroscientist, child psychiatrist, whose name is Jean Clinton. And she's fabulous. She was uh, already uh, fantastic, but she wasn't really looking at learning and her it's being well-being and all of the things that are troubling uh, children and, uh, and inside and outside school. And so she's come taken to it like a duck in water. She loves the... Uh, the kind of the crucible we have of learning and the latest rendition, and I, I really love this, that she suggested we worked out together, is uh, thinking of the double helix as the metaphor. And so the, in the double helix, there are two strands, the two DNA strands, and they connect um, with pathways. Uh, there's four of them that go sideways. They call them base pairs. So we're talking about a metaphor, not an analogy, although it's scary how, how uh, it's emerging as being very similar. And uh, across these base pairs, there are these lines of connection, and that's what activates the DNA evolution. And so if you, if you take this and you make the two strands, learning and well-being, those are the pillars, the strands. And uh, getting, we call it get a, getting good at learning, getting good at life. And so, and then the strands we've developed they all uh, are labeled with the same word, relationships, relationships, relationships. So you, we can actually identify specific types of relationships, belongingness, uh, purpose and meaning, collective work, uh, so that this is powerful. And I think what, uh, what the SEL work has done is brought this into focus, but it hasn't gone all the way because learning and SEL have to be integrated in the same paradigm.
they can't be two different things and be done effectively. So what I, uh, you ask about leadership, I know, but the focus of leadership, I think, is to help develop these two strands in tandem. And uh, that's what we're doing in our latest, latest work on deep learning. The leadership that's required, it's in nuance, uh, a lot of it, because it says, uh, take one of our big findings, and I'll, uh, it, it basically says this, every time somebody changes jobs as a leader, they become automatically de-skilled because context is, learning context is everything about moving forward. And uh, if they move to a new context, of course, COVID has changed the whole context for everyone, you know, virtually, you know, almost overnight. So this is, we want, um, we want leaders then who realize uh, understanding and, and changing context is the key, that you have to learn to do that and you have to learn jointly with people in it, especially young people, you have to forge new unities of purpose. So this is much more dynamic, much more, uh, I think, sophisticated. The leaders have to be learners, obviously, some of the things we already know, but they also have to be interactive in a way where they're another one of our key uh, insights coming from Roger Martin, actually, is that leaders have to be apprentices and experts at the same time. So they have to be experts and uh, don't, don't you know, know things and don't be afraid to be speaking up about them, but also realize that you're going to have to learn. You're going to have to, they, you have to be apprenticed to young people, to people in poverty who know a lot of things. Uh, uh, who do you ask about their theory of action? Do you ask people that are, are, are in trouble or do you ask so-called experts that are sort of macro people? And so I think the people who are on the receiving end a bad deal that I described before, uh, they, they, they're interested in changing things. They've just had no possible outlet to do it. And, uh, and so now I think uh, students for sure, we can leverage that. And these people who were on the receiving end, I'm gonna say of the bad system, and I'm not being excessively critical, that's how it evolved, are, are the very ones that see the light at the end of the title, tunnel already or we'll see it quickly when you open it up and leader's job is to open up the light at the end of the title tunnel and help people uh, motor through it. It reminds me a little bit of the, the sentiment from Maya Angelou, which is people will forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they, they never forget how you made them feel. And I think there's something to this, the quality of leadership, which is, you know, two leaders can say the same thing, but one of them will say it in a particular way that, that enables someone to feel seen and heard. And I think when we look at even, you know, at organizationally at schools, you know, how seen and heard and valued are all members of that dynamic learning ecosystem. Like where is power shared? There's a good insight. I mean, there's a good element in that, which is uh, when you stop and think about uh, changes that stick, changes that stick reach people emotionally, not just rationally. That's why all the, all the rational plan change fails. Because it's not dealing with the, uh, uh, the you know the emotional side. So I almost equate after almost fifty years working with change, I equate change and emotion as the same thing. It's the, it's the emotional kind of connection to something we already knew, or a brand new connection that opens up your eyes in your life that makes it. So if you can't um, have emotion as a really powerful part of the uh, way in which people learn and decide on changes, you will not get anywhere. If you have emotion, you get huge power. And that's where I think we need to figure out 
that uh, it's how you how we you're you're right. I, I use the same phrase about it's how you make people feel that they remember, not what you said. And uh, so we have to make people feel differently and have this uh, have this as part of the uh, dialogue, as part of the action, as part of the debriefing, part of moving forward. Yeah, that's such a great point. You know, I, often we all say, uh, you know, in leadership conversations, well, what do you think? And I'd, I'd, it's, it's interesting yeah. to know how often do we say, well, what do you feel? And what's the kind of, that language is really framing, you know, it's, it's giving permission, permission to feel, yeah. to use our colleague Mark Brackett's, you know, kind of terminology. Um, you know, the idea of really tapping into us. The other uh, equation I use, or, uh, which is, I think, brings it home better, is to say that it's not so much that these nuanced leaders ask people what they think. That's a passive way of getting at it. It's that these leaders absorb the reality. Mm. They cause absorption of, of the reality between those that they're leading and themselves. And both groups learn from that. And if you think of, uh, if just to use the nuance thing, superficial strategies are asking people that, for their input. Uh, deep strategies are absorbing each other's reality and context. And out of that understanding, forging together new realities. That's, I love that. I really love that. Um, Michael, you, 50 years of change, as you just mentioned, what's, this is a personal question, what's driven you across these 50 years? You know, why do you do what you do? That's a, that's a good question. I don't know whether I even have an answer to it, but uh, I did my... Um, autobiography about a year or so ago. It's called Surreal Change, a Rutledge series. And, uh, and so I, I didn't, uh, I went totally into my career that way. And uh, uh, although I didn't get all the, uh, the personal stuff out and some of it, but not all of it. Anyway, that's, that's for another book. But what, um, what drives me in some ways, and this, uh, this really sounds a bit odd, is not just moral purpose. I mean, lots of people have moral purpose or say they do. Sure. And I can't say that I wake up every morning, um, you know, just about moral purpose. But I do wake up saying, how can we move forward that this is, this is about society, this is about the future of the planet, this is about a lot of things. And my attraction is the complex problem solving with people. That is the attraction. And so to see it work, as we did in Ontario between 2003 and 2014, is the exciting part. And the moral purpose is part of that because if it works, it means lots of people are improving their lives. And that's tremendously satisfying. But my own makeup is such that it's, the, uh, it's, it's, it's just the complex problem solving and thinking and getting inside issues and seeing them move forward and having an impact about it. That's really what motivates me. So it's still, it's, it's too late to turn back. <laughs> I love the, the notion of, uh, you know, stay curious um, always. And yeah. you know, the complex problem solving really, I think, is, an, is a manifestation of curiosity. Uh, speaking of, um, as effectively like a learning expert um, who's written, I, I, how many books have you written? It must be approaching 20, if not more. No, no, I'm afraid it's more than that. It's, uh, it's 50. <laughs> okay, so fifty books. What's what is your biggest unanswered question? I don't really think I have one in that definitive sense. You would ask that question um, because uh, I think of it as uh, 
intrinsic complexity. I mean, I'm thinking evolution and dynamic complexity. Sure. And you, and you know from that. And when we've, uh, if you just take complexity, where we've come, I'm going to say in change terms, is uh, let's say the first 10 years of this decade, we had good success, I mentioned on Ontario. Mm. And we use complexity theory, one could say, which if you've got three levels, you have to uh, support people, get them excited about an agenda, uh, develop their capacity. As they get stronger, they take more and more control as part of an interactive development. I've now got a label for some of that uh, called connected autonomy. Uh, so that uh, we saw that, but then around, uh, I guess now, uh, 10 years later, we have, uh, and some other people have written about this as we do in The Devil in the Details, is complexity theory is no longer able, to, uh, that systems are more complex than complexity theory can manage in a way that it help a leader. So uh, I call it beyond complexity. But what it means is it's still, there are leadership things to be had. But what it means is you have to, uh, uh, you have to establish dynamic interaction around an important agenda and be in the middle of it and know that you're, you're discovering solutions through the process, mm. not, not say, you know, adapting and fixing it. So I think that the biggest unanswered question is about humanity for me. And that question is, where is humanity going? And if you, I've, I've been immersed in the evolutionary writers who basically say uh, humans lucked out in the, uh, in the, in the gene pool with uh, you know, bigger brains and bigger capacity. There's no, um, there's no reason why that happened other than just luck, the luck of combinations of uh, that. And we've got to that point where we can build on that luck or we can destroy ourselves. And so what the most fascinating thing is where is humanity heading? Yeah. Because it, well, the answer is not where it should head, although we, can, we want to talk about that. It's where it is heading. And right now it's a flip of the coin. We could be extinct in 10 years uh, or let alone 50. So uh, this is a fascination. This is like, uh, this is the universe. This is life. This is bigger than everybody. Wow, that's fantastic. Um... Not, not least of all the idea of, of the dynamic interactions, you know, things are too big to know. And, you know, the, some of the interesting work around kind problems and wicked problems. And so the challenge, you know, to your point around, you know, complex problem solving is that most problems that face us now as humanity are by definition wicked problems. Then they don't have a single or simple solution. Things like, you know, planetary limits that we have blown way past, um, increasing inequality. Um, would you say that you're, uh, to this point, because it's a big question, are you optimistic about where we go? Are you, what do you think are the, you know, where are those bright, what are, what are the kind of threads that you hold on to in answering that question? Because, I mean, at this particular moment in time, it's quite easy, I think, not least of all for our, our learners in schools and the hardworking educators and leaders working there also to become overwhelmed by just the sheer amount of, you know, the saturation of, of media that, that we are all consuming. Yeah, I'm, uh, I tend to be optimistic, I guess, anyway. So I am uh, optimistic. And if I gave you a concrete reason for that, mm. I'm going to say that, um, you know, because we've given some thought to this, if if we just take a uh, Gen Z generation, it comes along more than since 1995, 
yourself, I guess, in that category, uh, that the, the characteristics of the Gen Z uh, people compared to uh, the millennials or other before that are, they, uh, they, uh, my, char- my uh, capturing of it is it's, they're 50% anxiety and 50% wanting to change the world. Mm. So the, the, an anxiety is necessary as an edge to do that. So if things didn't turn out, anxiety would plummet and you know, we'd destroy ourselves. But the 50% of improving the world means, uh, in, in a, you know, it sounds almost, uh, uh, it is spiritual, but it's not in a, in a religious sense. It's more, in a, to me, in a secular evolutionary sense. Mm. To me, it's no accident that the Gen Z people have those characteristics. That exactly at the time we need them is exactly at the time they're arriving. Mm. And so, uh, so what we're, if you're having success as you are, and I know your work, with uh, mobilizing students, it's because they want to be mobilized, because they're amenable to it, because it's where their hearts and their minds are. And so uh, if you take that, you wouldn't have been able to stir up previous generations to do something the way you can with this generation. So I think where we are heading is that um, young people will save the next uh, future and that uh, people that are working with young people are recognizing more and more, as you and I are, to uh, say mobilization and partnership with young people to create new, brand new uh, educational learning phenomena Mm. is really where the immediacy is, as well as the possibility of survival. Mm. So this is a good convergence. That's why I'm optimistic. I could talk to you for another hour, Michael, and just kind of hear your your really powerful insights about... um, about learning and systems and ultimately about um, potentially our collective destiny. Um, I want to take us just down to really tangible take-home messages just to try to summarise the mm-hmm. conversation and uh, it's a tall ask. But if you were to, you know, what, what is the message you would give, based on what you've just said, what's the message you would give to a young person right now? What's the message you might give to an educator? And, and what's the message you might give to a system leader? So those three different levels because... As you say, there is, you know, the all, those those people are playing different roles, and it's if we can ultimately activate and empower all the human elements of our human systems in education. I mean, I think that's where we we can see really remarkable transformation. Um, what would you say? Right. Well, I think for young people, and I don't want to romanticize this because there are a lot of. Uh, young people that are living lives of desperation, uh, poverty, violence, uh, uh, in places where they're getting killed all the time, like really young, two-year-olds or uh, that. So there's a really kind of uh, uh, hard ask to say, mm. where do you start with that? Yeah. But the, the basic part is, is and I, I use the Gen Z people as an example, um, don't accept the current system. You're already not doing that. So that part's covered. Uh, uh, but do look for positive um, steps forward that has the, the values that we know that they will relate to and that some of us have been identifying. And so look for a positive outlet where you're, it might be small scale, but you're teaming up on the first case with other adults. Don't go alone mm. and don't go with the self-sealing click. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't seal yourself off. Uh, connected autonomy is what I, I referred to it as that you, you are your own person, your, your, your subgroup is strong, but you're also connecting to learn other things and you're connecting to challenge other people 
and learn from it. So I think in some ways, uh, young people and, and, uh, are finding huge uh, uh, outlets now that they didn't have 10 years ago. And when we, uh, we were together, uh, you know, for ICSI in Morocco and, uh, in January, yeah. and you see an awakening of the Middle East, of young people, that they, they actually, I mean, I don't only talk about Morocco because I talked to a lot of people and we spent just uh, eight days or so traveling through the country, but I saw a, a, a vibrancy and a kind of positivity in some sense. It was no long, It wasn't just anger against the world. It was, what am I going to do that's going to make me better and make the make other things better? There was a propensity for action that could be challenged. So I think young people increasingly will have opportunity to join other young people and to take that and to move away from being alienated to being a positive force, and they will feel that and want to do it and get a lot out of it and contribute to other people. So I think that's um, that's that. The uh, I think the uh, the educator uh, really is uh, this now in our uh, pedagogical models. They are not uh, let's support young people to go off and learn on their own. They're to form two way relationships with each other, but also with adults, and that uh, and that the bringing adults and young people close together within the learning domain is the second one. There are lots of teachers and principals who were suffering uh, silently or otherwise, knowing that they were in the wrong system. Yeah. But now they see a crack in that and, uh, and an opportunity, and they're coming to the fore. They're providing energy. So I think closeness between young people and adults via education will be a second one. And then system leaders, um, they're a little bit late to the table. Uh, I don't know whether you saw Andrea Schleicher's uh, interview with Tony uh, uh, Mackay uh, and asked uh, just about uh, four weeks ago, and Tony asked him what he saw, you know, post COVID, and he uh, response, and he said, "I uh, almost uh, par- I'm almost quoting him." Uh, Andrea said, "What I'd be impressed by is the enormous number of innovative reactions on the part of individuals, but I've been impressed by the reaction on the part of systems." And so, if you get to the uh, your question about the system leaders. I think they have to stop solving yesterday's problems. Yeah. That is to say, uh, how do we increase literacy and numeracy in high school uh, graduation? How do you go to, uh, you know, extreme productivity like Shanghai has tried with the educational system or South Korea? You have to shift from that, which to a certain extent was helpful perhaps for some of the last two decades or last decade, but it's not the one in the future. So they have to be able to shift. Mm. And if I, if I mentioned before that uh, evolution is relentlessly bottom up, I think they have to figure out how to uh, team up with the bottom uh, to, uh, to uh, we, in our book, you'll see in the devil, we say you need to, if you think of the three levels of the system, you need to exploit upward and liberate downward right. and interact laterally everywhere. So the exploit upward is people at the school level and uh, local level saying, okay, we, we're, we have leeway now. COVID's given us leeway. Let's take advantage of it. But let's also see what are there. There's lots of good policies. I, we know the, uh, you know, any policies about the future of youth in Australia, I forget the, the name of those groups, that have done it, but they paint, uh, they have all the good qualities in there. They're already legitimized. So we, what would I say about deep learning is the deep learning people, that are moving forward, they're not doing anything that's illegal. It's all we're already in the policy, <laughs> broadly. 
They're, they're doing something that's compatible, yeah. except they're pushing beyond the, the empirical versions of it. So I think system leaders have to realize that they do have to provide direction, but a new direction, a direction that has to do with the global competencies and a strategy that is liberating downward. And when we say it, liberating downward, we mean liberating groups uh, more than individuals, although individuals are clearly included. But if you in liberate downward and you have lots of interaction, the interaction, vertical and lateral, provides the checks and balances of sorting out what, good, what ideas are good and what are not so good. So it's not like you're just, it's not just chaos. It's there's a purposeful uh, framework of interaction that occurs when you do that. So, so exploit upward, liberate downward, lateralize learning everywhere. Thank you so much for your time, uh, Michael. If people want to get in touch and see some of the work, you know, the, you know, de- new pedagogies for deep learning, for example, you know, where, where should they go to explore some more of these ideas? Well, certainly uh, people can uh, start with my website. That's, uh, that's one outlet, uh, michaelfullen.ca, so CA for Canada. Uh, so all one word, Michael Fullen. Uh, the, uh, our NPDL site is strongnpdl.global. So uh, there's, we've got videos and all of kinds of things like that. And then uh, thirdly, uh, our, um, our group, uh, there's about 10 of us in the group that I, we're doing this uh, deep learning and system change. Uh, some of the people I've mentioned before, we are, have now, uh, because of the COVID uh, uh, gap, and the need for access to information more uh, um, without having to uh, be face-to-face all the time, mm. we are putting all of our work, we're developing new work that's uh, now available digitally with us interactively or otherwise. And so there's a growing source of resources that you can get from npdl.global and, and access to us as individuals. Uh, I mean, feel free to, uh, my, my email is mfullenatme.com. So M. Fullen, uh, no periods there, just one word, uh, um, you know, at me.com. So I'm glad to hear from anybody. And we're hearing from lots of people because there's so much going on now. It really we're is. We're finding that, that you are. That yeah. We're already far advanced. Uh, that, you know, advanced or we had nothing to do with it, but they look fabulous and they look like the ideas are compatible with ours. And uh, it's not just the people coming to us to say, will you help us? People are coming to us saying, look, I've done this. What do you think? Mm. That's, that's the great encouragement that I have right now. It's, it's wonderful. And I mean, my, my greatest hope is that we, we seize this opportunity to remake, reimagine, but also remake what education can be and what school is for um, by bringing people, yeah, all the elements true. of the system yeah. together. Michael, thank you for your time and more broadly, thank you for your ongoing contributions to education and change. It's wonderful to continue to learn from and with you. Yeah, thanks. Look, I I look forward. I hope we will uh, work together uh, as we head towards the next uh, year. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.